I want to spend a few moments studying the scriptures together. So before we begin our Torah study, let's let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk about a simple theme from this week's Torah portion, the theme of being a blessing. And you can turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 12. in which we begin the reading of this Torah portion called Lech Lecha, which is a great Hebrew phrase. Say that with me, Lech Lecha. And it could be translated into English this way, get up and get yourself out. There are times when God calls us to do things and we have to actually get up and do it. He's not going to do it instead of us. You've got to get out of your place and move yourself to the place that he'll show you. So let's read. The Lord said to Avram, Lech lecha, get up and get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. It's so important to understand that many times when God wants to bless us, he requires that we take responsive action to his direction. This is not a passive life that God has called us to. And there are things that God does for us that we can never do for ourselves, but there are things that he tells us to do that he will not do for us that we have to do in response to him. And so there are times when people say, well, I'll do it if the Lord makes me. That's not the heart of a disciple. A disciple says, if the Lord shows me or he tells me, then I'll say yes to him. So get up, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I'll show you. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Now the next part is worth looking at carefully. In the Hebrew, it's, it's clear. But in the English translations, it's often not clear. Because many translations say, you will be a blessing. How many of you have that in your English translation? You will be a blessing. And the will comes across as future tense. This will happen. You will be a blessing. And there are some translations that say, you shall be a blessing. How many of you have that in your translation? How many of you have another set of words altogether? Read to me what you have. No, before we get to that. And make, uh, it says, I will bless you and make your name great. And then the next phrase, that's what I'm looking at. You are to be a blessing. Good. That's good. What translation is that? David Stern's translation. Hurrah for David Stern. I love many of the details of, of David Stern's work, and this is one of them. You are to be a blessing. Uh, Martin Buber, in translating this into German, uh, which I do not speak, but I can tell you how he, how he put it, be a blessing. Be thou a blessing is another way of putting it. There's a real difference in saying you will be a blessing. It sounds like a prediction, doesn't it? It sounds like this inevitable thing that's going to happen, you will be a blessing. It, it almost sounds like a, a promise, you will be a blessing. If, if you turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you will be a blessing, 
It, it sounds like that, doesn't it? But the Hebrew is in more of an imperative form, saying, be a blessing. So it's not simply the, the statement of a value or a principle that you're supposed to embrace, but rather it's a command that requires action, and the action requires a heart. So this is actually a command from God to Abraham that's, a, that's God's speaking to Abraham's heart. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. And I was thinking about how unpopular it is these days to be a blessing. It's very popular to bless people who already agree with you and think the way that you do. But we live in such polarized times that extreme thoughts and voices want to consider the people with us to be worthy of blessings and the people against us to be unworthy. But God has a higher view than that. And if you desire to be a true son and daughter of Abraham, you have to know what you're getting yourself into. Of course, everybody wants the blessing. How many are in favor of having a blessed life? I would like to be blessed. How many people would prefer to be prosperous than broke? Healthy rather than sick? Well-fed rather than starving? Have a nice home instead of homeless? Everybody in favor of that? Clothed instead of naked? Yeah, yeah, it's like, okay. We're all in favor of it. But before... But God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you are to be a blessing. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Don't just think about it. Don't just aspire to it. And I I was thinking about being a blessing, and I I thought about the, the Boy Scout motto, the Boy Scout oath, and the Boy Scout law. How many of you are Boy Scouts or were Boy Scouts? Anyone, anyone here? Uh, some of you may be able to recite it from heart. But there's this wonderful statement that the Boy Scouts made. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times. Doesn't that sound good? To help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. So I was thinking, that's a, that's a good set of aspirations. Those are important values, aren't they? To, uh, to help other people at all times. We remembered all the cartoons about uh, Boy Scouts helping little old ladies across the street. But this aspiration of being of service to others is, is great. And let me ask you a question. As great as the Boy Scout oath is, do you think God had even more or less in mind for Abraham? More. More. So I was, I was reading the Boy Scout oath and promise, and I thought, if people just took that to heart, we'd be in better condition in this world than we are right now. Do you agree? But we wouldn't be where God wants us to be. We would be better, but we wouldn't be where God wants to be. Because God has in mind that we would be 
a blessing that touches the whole world, that we would be a blessing that shows and reveals the mercy and the goodness of God to all kinds of people. Yeshua, who understood how people think, said, it's easy to love your friends. I'm telling you, love even your enemies. And you know, that's one of the least popular teachings of Yeshua. Love your enemies. What's more popular is curse your enemies. Dehumanize your enemies. Explain to yourself why they don't deserve the mercy of God. Am I right? I know I am. And it's not because I'm right, it's because the world is in a sorry situation. It's important for us to learn to be a blessing. So Abraham is told, be a blessing, and he's told that without uh, any kind of um, boundaries where he could understand it as, well, be a blessing to just some people who you want to be a blessing to. But rather, his, his view is enlarged. God says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the families of the earth. Now imagine this, that Abraham's counting on all of his children to get this in their hearts and in their minds. That God's counting on the children of Abraham learning this and getting it into our hearts and our minds so that we ourselves could act on it. So that we could take it seriously, be a blessing. And God says to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I know that God made a special covenant with Abraham. Do you know that? And I know he made special covenant with Isaac. Do you know that too? And I know he made special covenant with Jacob. Do you know that? So we know that he made special covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But do you know he made covenant with Ishmael? You better know that. Because God says that Abraham, through Abraham, all the... Families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, the reason I bring that up is because it's really popular for the lovers of the Jewish people to be the haters of those, of those who act sometimes as enemies to the Jewish people. And that is a wrong understanding and a wrong attitude. We have to have another way of looking at things. We have to have a different perspective. We have to see people differently and think about them differently. For some reason, I kept having an experience brought to mind. I, I made note of it, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to share about it. It's, it's irrelevant. But over and over again, the Holy Spirit seemed to be stirring up this experience that I had, so I decided I would share it with you. It goes back to a time in the early 90s when I got contact lenses, and I was so excited that I could be in the rain without my glasses fogging up. And I could be in the snow without the same. And I, at the time, I was living in Rochester, New York, and we had rain or snow most of the time. It was one or the other. And every so often, we would have beautiful days. 
like we had here today in Jacksonville. I got these contact lenses a few days before Sandy and I took a trip to Israel. And while we were in Israel, I had the hardest time with these contact lenses. And I have to tell you, I, spent, I had to get up an extra hour early every morning in order to get the contact lens in each of my eyes. It was so hard for me. I had that instinct of protecting my eye when my finger came close. How many of you have ever worn contacts? You, you know something about this experience. And to this day, I, I'm pretty good. I can take my finger now. I can touch my eyeball. It's not a big deal. That, that whole blink reflex is like under control. But when I first had these contact lenses, not only did it take me an hour to put them in, but they hurt so bad. I could, I I was uncomfortable. And I was sure this is because of the pollen in Israel and the dust in Israel and all that sharp grit getting in my eye. Every day it was awful. Every day my eyes were red and I was not going to give up though. (laughs) I worked too hard, yeah. So every day I put them in, and occasionally everything was fine. But most of the time, it was unbearable. When I got back from this trip, I had an appointment with the eye doctor, and I said, I don't know the contacts are for me. It took me an hour every day. And he said, it should take, you know, like 30 seconds. I said, I know, but it took an hour. And I said, what's worse is they hurt the whole time. And he said to me, show me how you do it. And so I showed him how I took the contact lens out of the case and how I put it on my finger, how I tried to get it in my eye and how it would like pop out of my eyes. I I would, in front of him, I just kept trying to put it on over and over again. He said, okay, I see what's going on. And he said... Look at your contact lens. And I looked and I said, looks the way it always does. He said, well, that's the problem. You're putting it on inside out. (laughs) And inside out with the contact lens renders the edge kind of sharp rather than tapered. And it has like this desire to pop. So it's in my eye and it's wanting to get out of my eye. Plus, it's sharp. Yeah. So he, he smiled while he was doing this. And he said, okay, now try it the correct way. Yeah. And he showed me what to look at in the contact lens. Actually, there's a little micro printing that tells you what's inside and what's outside. And I had it reversed. So I was consistently doing it wrong. Uh, almost 100% of the time. And as a result, my, my vision was impaired. It hurt. This came to mind for a simple 
reason, I think. This experience taught me something. The perspective that you have can change. And it can be either a good perspective or a bad perspective. What I was seeing was awful. I had a miserable trip in Israel. I I remember almost nothing about the trip. I remember only my eyes being sore. As soon as I learned to put them on right, not only could I see clearly, I could enjoy everything around me. And instead of something being trouble, it was a pleasure. And I used contact lenses for decades after that. I was, I was just really delighted. It, this is not about contact lenses. It's about perspective on life and perspective on things. And I can tell you this. God was saying to Abraham, you've got to get my perspective in order to live this life I've called you to. And if you do, it's not going to be that painful because I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. And it will not be pain of your own doing because you will be hearing me and doing what I say, and you will also be a blessing to other people. So despite the difficulties of life, the meaning of life will be completely different. Instead of wanting to give up because it's too hard, like I was in that condition with contacts, you will learn to live from God's perspective and enjoy the life that he has for you. He'll turn you and your life around. It will change how you see things. And not only will you see clearly when you see from God's perspective, you will see what you couldn't see any other way. And you will understand things that you could not understand. And if you have blurred vision or painful vision in the spiritual sense, you will not perceive correctly what's going on in the world around you, how could you respond to it correctly? Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. If that sounds like something that's annoying to you, then your heart needs to be worked on. If that sounds like something that's joyful to you, then your heart's ready to serve the Lord. And you can say, Lord, I want to be a blessing. How do you want me to be a blessing? In what way can I be a blessing? Now, I want to take a few minutes. I want to shift the little gears. It may feel abrupt. But I want to tell you about a debate and dialogue that's been going on in the Messianic movement for the last few days among Messianic rabbis in the IMCS. We've been talking about a subject which is the upcoming 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and uh, the Protestant Reformation. And the question is how to view Martin Luther? It's a very serious question. And the, the reason it's so serious is that Martin Luther wrote, among other things, on concerning the Jews and their lies, he wrote one of the most horrid anti-Semitic treatises that's ever been penned, calling for the burning of synagogues, the death of Jews, the eradication of all civil rights of Jews, among other things. And if you're unfamiliar with his writings in this area, you should get familiar. 
And tomorrow I'll read some excerpts. So if you want to, to become familiar, you can either come tomorrow or listen to the podcast. And his writings are readily available. So the question was, is he a hero or a villain? How should we regard him? And you know the adage, uh, where there are two Jews, there are three opinions? I found that almost every rabbi who weighed in on this had to weigh in two or three times in order to express his two or three opinions about the subject. I limited myself to one, uh, one opportunity. But it was a serious question, and, and one of the one of the perspectives that was shared by many is think about the good that he did, think about the changes that came as a result of of his teachings and his positions and so forth. And uh, just look at the good. Well, I can tell you this. If you only look at the good, you will come to what kind of conclusion about anything? Good, positive, right. In fact, I, I did... Um, I, I did a terrible thing once. I gave a teaching to Christian leaders here in Jacksonville, and I gave half of the room one set of scriptures and the other half another set of scriptures. It was about the same person, Balaam. And I gave one side of the room scriptures that only spoke about the positive attributes of Balaam. And to the other side, I gave them only the scriptures that spoke negatively of him. And I didn't tell them I was doing this. That's what was so bad. And I asked them a simple question. Was he a good guy or a bad guy? And wouldn't you know it, one side of the room said he was great. And the other side said, are you kidding? He was awful. And when I finally fessed up and said, I only gave each of you half the story because I wanted to see, would you pay attention to the whole story? And... Understandably, they were all mad at me for a while. But I tell you, it was a lesson they didn't forget, even if they wanted to. If you only look at the good, you'll think good. If you only look at the evil, you'll think evil. But if you ignore the evil, if you just ignore it, you won't have an honest picture. And that is a problem that that we in our country, in, in the world today, has to face. How can you face the evil that someone may have done and assign proper weight and value to it and be honest about it? So the question really was not, did he do any good? The question was, did his evil, did his evil weigh so heavily in history, that he should not be held up as a hero. And just to give some examples, if I can, he said, uh, what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct. He said, uh, I give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues. Bury and cover them with dirt, whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. 
so that God will know we are Christians. There were times in the Holocaust in, in Budapest where Catholic priests led the charge with Nazi not shoulders, soldiers, proclaiming as they were about to murder Jews, you know, in the name of Jesus we do this. And the Jews never forget this. And it goes on, their houses should be razed and destroyed. Their rabbis should be forbidden to teach, henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. They should, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. It was that extensive. And he goes on and on. So, I was reading an article in Christianity Today. It was a debate between two theologians, Christian theologians. Was Martin Luther anti-Semitic? Or was he just anti-Judaic? And I, myself, came to the conclusion, anti-Semitic or anti-Judaic, just don't cover it. Because... To experience anti-Semitism where someone is like, you know, they don't like you or they discriminate against you, they're sort of prejudiced, you know, and so forth, that's one thing. But to want to kill you, that's another thing. It, it has to rise to another level. And, and so I came to the conclusion, that I don't know if I would have at other times in my life, but I came to the conclusion... He's not a hero of the faith. He's not. Now, some people say, well, he did so much good. It's not the question. He's not a hero of the faith. Because he did not represent the scriptures accurately, nor the heart of the God of the scriptures. That was my conclusion. And someone, one of the rabbis said, well, he wasn't the first. He wasn't the originator of all this. You know, it started much earlier than that. And my thought was, you don't have to be the originator. You don't even have to be original to be deemed egregious in your behavior. And unfortunately, many people took the teachings of Luther in order to establish the foundations of some of the Nazi theology, which was also anti-Christian ultimately and pagan, but I'm not trying to get into that. I'm trying to say that among evangelicals and Protestants in Germany, there were many who bought the teachings of and the attitudes of Martin Luther regarding the Jews and thought this is the right thing to do. And at least they were afraid to speak up. And there was the confessing church. I mean, I I know the history, so I'm trying to paint in broad strokes something. I know that there were many who stood for the Jews and sacrificed for the Jews, no doubt. But we're not talking about many. The question is, should we esteem Martin Luther as a hero of the faith? 
And as a Messianic Jew, I'm of the mind that we shouldn't. So I reached that conclusion and I realized it, in these days, it's difficult to take positions that are straightforward like that. And uh, I've, I've thought about other things, you know, like my reconsideration of Thomas Jefferson, beloved Virginian and president and so forth and so on. But not only was he uh, a slaveholder and owner, but he was a rapist. And if you think of, you see, for me, it's like really hard to think of Thomas Jefferson as a rapist, except for the facts that he was a rapist, except for the facts. And I found myself as a good Virginian who learned our history and to esteem the Virginia and and all those who, uh, all the presidents who came from Virginia, um, I found it difficult to accept the facts as facts, to give weight to them. And maybe you've never been in that situation where you, you find yourself at war with yourself to even acknowledge facts. I, I found it. And the only thing that helped me get through it was dealing with incontrovertible facts, which is what helps me take a position about Martin Luther, incontrovertible facts. Should those who advocate for the murder of Jews and the burning of synagogues be held in high esteem by believers of any stripe? Answer, no. But what if they did good too? And, you know, the smart aleck in me thought, well, let's give credit to Haman at least for teaching the Jews to... uh, to fast and pray and seek the Lord. And let's give credit to Pharaoh, you know, teaching the Jews about how to not give up and to keep crying to God until he delivers, and so forth. You understand? Yeah, it's like, you know, all hell, Pharaoh and Haman. And I'm of the mind to God be the glory, but not to Luther and not to these others. But some of you, you know, you're going to struggle with, with even the thought around this because of your fond memories of the values of one or another of the people I've talked to. And if you're like me, you struggle even about talking about it. Because honestly, there was a time when I thought, I don't even want to talk about it these days. As I was getting ready to leave, Sandy was looking at my notes and she said, what are you doing? And then she reminded me of an article she wrote in um, our congregational newsletter in Rochester 20-some years ago about Martin Luther and his writings. And she just, she wasn't anything other than descriptive. She just um, included quotes from his writings and said, a lot of people don't know this, you should know this, and so that you can understand why Jewish people don't consider him one of the good guys. And uh, a good friend came up to Sandy and said, I don't know whether you're courageous or foolish, you know, that you would write something. But I, I, that's how I remembered it, and Sandy remembered it the same way, but I actually think he said, I don't know whether you're courageous or stupid, 
You know, do you realize how people are going to react when you put this, these facts out? So we were just laughing. It's like, well, we don't know. You know, we don't know if we're courageous or stupid. We just don't know. But do you hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because when among sincere Bible-believing Christians who hold dear this idea that they should bless the children of Abraham and that, the children, that those who curse the children of Abraham are cursed, how do we take that true value, how do you take that true value and apply it to someone who's a hero of Protestantism, who cursed the Jewish people? Well, you, there's a wide range of doing it, and I welcome you to try to find your position on it. But um, the, the question is, once you look at the facts, can you just say, oh, this is a fact, and then deal with it? And I think if we do this, as, as one rabbi wrote, if we can pull down statues of, and monuments, we can certainly look at these kinds of issues with boldness and honesty. And it's time to see things from such a perspective. So I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm finished. Okay. <laughs> I'm stopping here. Think, think about these things. It will help you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us, a mercy we don't deserve. Thank you for the calling that you give to us, a calling that's above and beyond what we could ever have aspired to ourselves. Thank you for bringing us into your family and into the family of Abraham and Sarah with the instruction that we should know the, the quarry from which we have been hewn. Abraham and Sarah, and that we should be of them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fortify us as we take seriously this idea of being a blessing and that we would be sober-minded in our evaluation of what does it mean to be a blessing and what does it mean to be a curse. I ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So let's close with Aaron's blessing. I expect at least one person, if not more, will say, well, you didn't say nice things about Martin Luther, you know, so you weren't being a blessing to him. And, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> the Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.